0: You're listening to the third episode of Season 2 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. As in Season 1, this podcast goes into a strict Christian upbringing and traditional isolationist church climate not working out, but is not intended as an attack on faith. In fact, it is mainly about trying to retain some connection to God despite everything and everyone. It's also about depression and the cathartic powers of words and music. Each episode is me explaining what was going on in my young adult life that occasioned the writing of a song from my unreleased follow up concept album, Peter Gray Grows Up. I'll continue for the two of you who are still listening. (music) Episode 3. Hello, down there. What was that powerful thing that uncontrollably ripped out of the husk of your church self in the previous podcast? I can hear you asking. With squishing sounds I recorded by squishing a piece of cooked chicken into a powerful microphone, with the sound of a cardboard box burning in the wood stove in the background. Was it my old nature, the flesh, the old man, or the dead, fallen state of humanity alive and active in me? The most worldly Christian in this room tonight has within him that new nature that wants to please God. But the old nature is still there. The old nature, that fallen nature, I think it was the youth, the life, the energy, the passion that God built into me and which had always had to stay muted and hushed and quiet and still all the time in my beige quiet little Christian group. You wall up, bury, crucify something God gave you as a gift, part of you, made in his image. If you demonize that part of yourself and everything that pertaineth to joy, you risk creating a monster. You fuel the cold black fires of depression. Yeah. It was stunted, crippled passion for life, for girls, for music, for stories, for nature, for heated intellectual debate, for friendship, for many things. Things my meeting told me I had to surrender, sacrifice, and leave behind me for the Lord. Thing is, the Lord was trying to give me those things and see me get the full benefit out of them. I note with amusement in The Sun Also Rises that American self-destructing author Ernest Hemingway wrote in the 1920s, The Spanish folks, when inquiring if Americans are aficionados of, for example, bullfighting, they were asking very specifically if these Americans had aficion, passion, a fierce, deep, fiery love for an activity welling up from deep inside. Bullfighting, hockey, painting, fishing, quilting, music, dancing, mystery novels, figure skating, whatever. Passion, aficion. What my church would have called making an idol of the thing and would then have cast all kinds of shade at us for so doing. Well, Hemingway writes, the Spanish, when asking Americans this, assume that Americans will all claim to have aficion, but really they've confused the deeper, fiery passion welling up for a superficial state of agitation they can get worked up into quite easily. Excitement, says Hemingway, an altogether more shallow, short-lived thing. And Americans love to announce how excited they always seem to be. Recently, they have stopped claiming to be excited about things and started saying they're excited for things. And, in fact, there has traditionally been no way to be cooler or go against the grain in America than to claim to have liked a thing before everyone else got excited about it, or to have generally found it a bit meh. Not on the list of things they admit to getting excited about. Fonzie was, as the bare-naked Ladies sang, very cool. Because he never got excited, but as an Italian character, he was played as a passionate man with a strong personality and a lot of confidence and drive to pursue his passions. Canadians aren't as into proclaiming our continual excitement as Americans, and even the word passion makes quite a few of us somewhat fidgety. We tend to retreat to our phones and pretend to check our email. Speaking of passion, when I was about to graduate high school and was not at all like Arthur Fonzarelli, I had a crush. I was excited at the idea that I finally had someone. She's the girl whose hair was full of fiery curls, mentioned in the song In the Hole, in fact. I'd been crushed under the weight of depression, full bore. For a couple of years by that point and this was about to be helped along by a double failure to launch romantically that happened in april of that year i was all torn up over not fitting in or being accepted anywhere and found the very idea of a lovely young woman accepting me as special unto her and publicly associated with her absolutely exciting at school I had a big guilty crush on Kim, a tiny non-brethren girl from the next town over who had long curly brown hair, huge brown eyes, and a big brilliant smile. I gave her a drive home from school when she needed one one time and also agreed to help her with her homework before school the next day by coming in an hour before school started. It has always nearly killed me to wake up earlier than my routine, but I got up and showed up only to get stood up. I found that Kim was too busy sitting in the laps of some hockey players and giggling madly to acknowledge that I was in the calf too. And there was this unspoken agreement being telegraphed my way from her slender form that I was supposed to help her pretend for her own sake that she had not agreed to meet with me that morning and then had not stood me up while we were both still in the same room. I was supposed to help her out in this way so she could sit on the hockey players. I didn't know what exactly she'd done for me that had earned her this special collaboration and resented it, but didn't make a scene or anything like that. This would be my first experience of something I then met repeatedly with non-church folks. Bill certainly. Basically, fuck off, will you? Can't you see that I'm trying to fuck this person? That all seemed very foreign to a Brethren guy like me. That would teach me for trying to hang around with someone who wasn't one of the Lord's people, I thought wild, foolish hope to possibly try to bring her out to our church at some point in future. And since then, I've found that it seems to be standard for women to signal very overtly that they're very interested, and then change their minds, and then expect you to help them pretend that all this certainly never happened. Lying, I am tempted to call it. For me, it's rather like going to a clearly marked drive through window at a McDonald's, ordering a meal advertised on the sign, paying the money, and then having them ask you to please go home without your meal, pretending that you had not in fact ordered anything at all, had never been there, and that they were not after all a McDonald's restaurant to begin with despite the big yellow arches and so on. I don't think women owe men anything physical ever. But the social aspect is a whole other kettle of snakes entirely. The whole helping them pretend nothing happened when they've turned tail and aborted a chemistry that had looked for a moment like it might have been forming is quite the amazing social innovation. So you don't like me? Fine, I'd think. But do I really have to help you pretend that you never did, even for a moment, just to make your social life simpler? Where's that written? Well, the redhead from America, who for the purposes of this podcast, I'll call the redhead from America, came highly recommended as a nace girl by my aunts as someone boys should have been showing interest in but sadly weren't. Well, she looked okay. She was a smart, cheerful ditz, and oddly... I didn't end up fitting in well with her approach to life. But we did the brethren thing, not dating. We exchanged phone numbers and addresses and began writing to each other. Everyone soon knew we were not dating. We carried on not dating for months. I labored over the wording and drawings in the letters I sent. I tried to be creative and funny. I made her a mixtape with home recording on it. She didn't like it. She probably doesn't like this. And I found out, when all of the guys and girls at school seemed to be trying to figure you out when your life doesn't seem to make any sense to them, when it's known that there's a girl you're angling for, they all understand that. Suddenly you're just like everyone. Then there was to be the Ottawa Bible Conference at Easter. I intimated in writing that I was looking forward to seeing her. It was to be her birthday around then too. I got the sinking feeling that she'd lost interest once she got a taste of my thinking and sense of humor, so I doubled down and carved her a little life-size chickadee out of wood and painted it and made little wire legs for it and put tiny glass beads for eyes in its little head. Fortune might favor the bold. For those who are unaware, a chickadee is an adorable round little songbird in the tit family. In spring, their mating call is heard everywhere and bird watchers imagine these cute little tits are calling, hey, sweetie, to their intended love interests. Had little black caps and peek in my windows to see what's going on in here all the time. Very cute. Very romantic to give one to a girl who was about to turn 18 when you'd just turned that yourself and now presumably were an adult and knew how these things were meant to go. I bought a cubicle cardboard gift box and brought the carved chickadee in it to the Bible conference wearing my brand new black Wrangler jeans with a yellow black and white plaid flannel shirt. And a funny thing happened. Whenever I entered a room of several hundred people, I'd be pretty sure I'd caught a glimpse of her leaving by her nearest exit, or that I had just missed seeing her do that. She was a jean-skirted ginger ninja. I asked her sister what was up, and her sister, in her charming way, denied that Red was avoiding me, claiming that in fact Red very much wanted to see me, but simply had a headache. Lying, I call that. So I put the bird in the box, back in the trunk of the older of the two family cars I'd driven there. There was an incredible feeling of lost, thwarted interruptedness right through the middle of me, like I'd done something wrong but didn't understand what. I wouldn't have been altogether surprised if I'd gotten suddenly arrested right then for whatever it was. It seemed like it must be pretty bad. When I later that day completely randomly ran into Red quite by accident, I think she got her nerve up and presented herself to me after a few hours of avoiding me. To be polite, she pretended to be glad to see me accepted the box, thanked me effusively, yet unconvincingly, and left my vicinity forever, clearly grateful to be gone. She would soon go on to marry the brother of my next American crush, my American cousin, then marrying and divorcing said next American crush, the sister of the young man who married Red. Brethren, be like that sometimes. Not nearly enough last names among us, and mine not being one of the cool ones. I wasn't a Rule, a ho, a Buchanan, or a Bauman. I wasn't even a Clausen. And back then, I was shattered and alone that day. First the girl from the world, then the one from the meeting, tossing me to the curb awkwardly like a pound of hamburger that was starting to smell a bit off. I couldn't eat, and so at mealtime I went outside and leaned miserably on the wall, the unwanted gift box delivered and pretend appreciated. I wanted the carved chickadee back. I spent some time on it. I heard people laughing and cutlery clinking like it was coming from a different world. I wasn't sure I'd ever felt worse. I felt like the Earth's gravity had started to rapidly increase, and I wouldn't be able to keep propped up against that red brick wall much longer and would soon fall straight into the middle of the Earth, falling forever then just before that happened a guy a year older than me walked by me with a small child sitting on his head he held the child's ankles in his hands on either side of his head to keep it securely in place like a hat and then a guy a couple of years younger than me came along also with a small child sitting on his head the second two were like a smaller repeat of the first two it was beyond surreal at the time like something dr seuss would draw then almost like an afterthought The younger guy set the kid down, came over, and started a conversation with me. That never happened normally. He was American, had the same first name as I did, was two inches shorter even than me, and was an artist and musician. An artist and musician in the Plymouth Brethren? Like someone who painted paintings that weren't sunsets and wrote songs rather than played hymns on the piano out of the songbook at hymn-sings? Michael went around routinely making people laugh and came from a creative family who seemed to be making no attempt to meet all the many brethren expectations, yet demanding first-tier status and respect all the same. And oddly, it seemed to be working. They seemed to know all about books and music and nature and philosophy and things, things I often didn't know on subjects I was used to being the only one in the room who was interested in. I was fascinated. Here, for once, I was being looked at as shallow and uninformed rather than inappropriately deep and in possession of too many inconvenient facts. It was amazing. Michael had a real taste for the surreal and the silly in music and art and everything. At the next Bible conference I went to, this time in Ohio, I hoped to see Michael. He was there all right, but this time it was Michael who was avoiding me. He was walking around holding hands with Red. I didn't really get to talk to either of them. They were both red-haired and the same height. Michael had seen me talking to her back in Ottawa, so only came over and spoke to me then to see what I'd maybe done wrong with her that he could avoid repeating. I'm pretty sure it wasn't that I was too tall and not ginger enough. Those two were spending many hours on the phone with letters mailed and tanks of gas burned to meet up in person, but in the entire time they not dated Brethren Fashion, Michael said, she was not open to a single kiss or passionate embrace. Brethren be like that sometimes. Now Michael had only struck up a conversation with me to try to get at Red, but once she dumped him for my next crush's brother, and I found out what he'd done and didn't seem to hold a grudge, we were friends for a time anyway. Michael's friends with whoever is talking to him at any given moment. Strand him in the desert in Nevada, and he'll meet a friend. I don't find friends as easily, and I tend to lose mine, mostly by being myself. This chance meeting at an Ottawa Bible conference, though, signaled a social change I'd been more than ready for, coinciding with my graduating high school and going off to university, as well as the division starting to happen. I had used to hang around and not play sports with a Canadian guy or two at youth group events, but now I started hanging around with an entirely more bohemian, artistic and wild, free group of American Brethren people. There was some kind of a Brethren youth underground going on, an alternative movement among us. Young folks who showed up at Brethren stuff and wanted to be taken seriously there and take part in Bible discussions and so on, but also go to movies and drink a beer too. Madness. We'd all been told if you started drinking beer, you'd soon enough smoke, become an alcoholic, and likely die in a car wreck and go to jail. The Lord would speak. The original guys I'd stand around and not play the sports with did not approve of these new guys at all and never forgave me for hanging around with these new people instead of just them. I checked years later. So in the real world, it's 1988. I'm wearing a yellow flannel plaid shirt, leaning on the red brick wall of a college in Ottawa, feeling like the weight of the world is crushing me, and a guy and his brother walk up with kids on their heads at a Bible conference and are nice enough to me and seem positively like magic leprechauns of some kind. They like the pursuits I like and don't like the ones we are supposed to. They disrupt everything socially, turn expectations on their heads, and generally have fun everywhere they go. And they believe that's all as it should be. And they expect everyone else to see it exactly the same way. I remember at a winter Brethren Bible Youth Weekend, one of the all-two Brethren rings of carefully besweatered teenage girls all standing, backs turned shoulder to shoulder gossiping and looking at boys in the room and the other girls who were talking to them. Well, Michael. Seeing something unfamiliar to him and weird, there weren't enough girls in his own assembly in Enola, Pennsylvania to form rings, walked over to the big closed ring of turned female backs in a melodramatic military style, shoved his way into the middle of the circle, and began marching around in there like a five-foot-six-inch wind-up tin soldier toy of some kind, now the center of their attention. They all burst into delighted, shocked laughter. Of course, Michael had an extremely serious, overly solemn expression on his face the whole time, and then marched off without ever breaking character. Where we all despaired of these arbitrary social structures and boundaries, Michael made flouting them a full time job. All of this was before I met my non brethren musician contacts like Bill and Troy, or ever went into a studio. But I had met a group of brethren creatives paintings, drawings, poems, songs, short stories, plays, the lot. I had a cassette 4-track I was using. Michael had a chord keyboard, he wasn't, so I boarded it for much longer than was polite. In the imagery of my albums and this week's song, this is about my protagonist, Peter, lying in the bottom of a cavernous, dark, wet hole where the previous album left him, looking like Robin Williams in Jumanji or Tom Hanks in Castaway, and then a cheerful, dancing little leprechaun man walks up and sings a song, inviting Peter to come on up out of that dark, depressing hole and sing and write songs together, which they then do. It marks the start of really throwing myself into music and writing things, making no bones about it, and looking to meet other people who like to do that stuff too. I was sick of standing around wondering why on earth I didn't like all the stuff I was supposed to be enjoying. I was ready to start doing what I wanted to do instead of just not doing what I didn't. And I was tired of doing or not doing everything alone. This is one of those many quirky, fun songs that pretty much work best in the demo version, recorded sloppily when the song came into my head nearly fully formed. In that version, it's much faster, with me using Michael's keyboard, which I used for pretty much all the keyboard parts you've heard me do to date. I remember being amused at the sound of a train driving through town picking up in the vocal mic at the end. The concept for a more elaborately put together duet version was to have Michael sing verses that were very him and have me sing verses that were amusingly contrastingly me. It was to be a comedic collision of genres. So Michael's verses and lines might be polka or something cheerful. Mine would be miserable metal of some kind in exactly the same tempo. I'd never worked on this song in the studio, so it was mostly about getting simpler four-track and early computer recording experiments I found amusing and trying to do them better with more professional gear. Well, I tried a lot of things. Turns out it was pretty hard to do. I settled on Michael's parts being as marching band as I could manage. I tried very hard to make mine like Ramstein but it was just too distracting and impossible to make the two styles made up at the end. It was a little bit very too much. The remedy to this problem was The Cure. Not because I listened to them a great deal, but because I associated Robert Smith of that band with singing in a whiny voice about depressing things, which I thought was perfect for my protagonist. I I I don't normally sound anything like The Cure, I knew but i thought i could manage it if i just did a ridiculous exaggeration of it imagining how i might sound to other people always going on and on about myself and my problems oddly i turned out to be better at doing a cartoon silly version of michael's part than he was is shining, birds are singing, we have some fun but i really craved collaboration And wanted to replace my singing as him singing to me with me also singing as myself to me as him with a proper two-part bro duet with our two voices. I would play me and he would play himself. So I got permission at the school where I was teaching to come in one evening and play all the marching band stuff. I got a newly located Mindy to play ukulele to replace that guitar as entirely more cheerful sounding. And I asked the music teacher about a tuba part, as I think tubas sound like hilarious wet farts but can't play them. Oddly, in the rough version, me just quietly going whomp 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 Womp, 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 worked out surprisingly well. My colleague listened to my track and quickly typed a tuba part into a sheet music creating program, printed it, and pointed me toward an extremely gifted tuba student of hers named Paul, who was about to graduate and go off to study music or something. Well, Paul played, and I recorded him, and Cynthia had consistently gotten one of the notes wrong throughout. So I later found the correct note played elsewhere in the song and copied and pasted it over the incorrect ones. Seemed to work. And I tried to imitate a choir of singing pirates or vikings or something. really wanted to do something like Monty Python's Spam song, (laughs) but couldn't really manage it. Then I decided to do a demo of the cure idea to see if it would work. I had tried many things. I took an isolated bit of drums from a Cure song. I ended up having to digitally slow the Cure drum loop down significantly to make it fit my song. It was a tempo compromise between the two parts. Michael's really needed to be more fast and mine needed to be more mopey. I plugged instruments direct in rather than using good mics and amps and so on and just did it casually and found it worked far better than I'd thought. sang in my most ridiculous, whiny lampooning of early Robert Smith. Quite pleased, I then decided to do it right, got out the mics and the amps, recorded everything properly and it sounded a whole lot less like The Cure. So I left the crappy version in as the final one. Then 20 years after the meeting that prompted the writing of the song, I planned a trip to Michael's house as he lived in New York State but not terribly far away from me at that point. I packed up my computer and gear and recorded him singing his parts to replace my version of him, Hello Down There, You Seem a Little Down, Down There, and his wife Bethany playing cello for a song on an entirely different album. I EQ'd Michael to sound like he was singing on a very old timey gramophone record. Michael tends to ooze rather full notes, more suited to Broadway, which causes problems when a sprightly rhythm is the thing as it was supposed to be on this one, but we got it done.